Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Dr. Craig Marker, I'm so glad to talk to you. We have this clear Skype camera. We're smiling at each other from across the country, and you've changed my life, man. So I'm so glad for the listeners to... Uh, to join in and talk about this this breakthrough, what I believe is a is a, a huge transformation in our approach to high intensity training, and a lot of it was captured in that that landmark article, "Hit versus Hurt." So we got all kinds of stuff to talk about, man. Let's let's see how you're doing over there in, in Georgia. And doing very well, Brad. You're one of my favorite people to talk to. So I'm a super. We've been planning this for a little while, so I'm super excited. I know you've got a lot of good projects going, so. I think we're, I'm excited to see those too. So well worth the wait. So over there at breakingmuscle.com, there's an article titled Hit Versus Hurt. Uh, what's the subtitle, the cute subtitle? Oh gosh, what is, I, I might have something about your feelings don't matter. Your or... feelings don't matter, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> something and, like that, yeah. Uh, the, the essence of it, why don't you describe what's, I mean, hit is now, the coolest term and everybody's doing hit and hits great and it's better than just jogging because you you get fitter faster but i think uh, lost in the shuffle is the you know the stress impact of these these suffer fest workouts that have become the, the centerpiece of the fitness world and how we can how we can change that approach yeah. Yeah. So yeah the I mean I'll just describe the term first the uh, hurt it's just a I don't Something I was just looking for when I needed a title, but it's high intensity repeat training. I don't know if it will actually catch on or not. There's another, um, I forgot what it stands for, another hurt out there. But um, the idea of repeats versus intervals. Intervals, there's usually a decline in performance. People get really fatigued over time. So the Gabala style training is 20 seconds on, 10 seconds of rest. Doing Tabata, four- you mean? Yeah, Tabata, I'm sorry. Um, I'm already starting thinking about the next one. Yeah, the Tabata's uh, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds of rest, eight intervals. And over time, you're supposed to have maximum effort, but your performance starts to decline over time. You start to build up the glycolytic, um, the acid in the body, and your performance uh, starts to to go down. Um, repeats are when you can repeat the same performance over time. Um, so if you're using any sort of power measure, or any sort of, you know, if timing on your sprints or whatever it is. I use an accelerometer for kettlebells. Um, You can measure your power. And what you want to see is no decline in performance over your interval. So that's the repeat part. You're repeating the same performance. Um, You know, with that, what we need to be able to repeat the same performance is a little bit more rest. And, you know, this is not something I created. Marty Gabala um, has been doing a lot of research on this. And um, he's just changing the rest intervals. And one of his first uh, studies, he did a... probably have this about right 20 seconds on and then or i think it was 30 seconds on four minutes of rest but you have four minutes to recover before your next interval um and you know what he found are some of the same effects as the tabata uh style training and and vo2 max and some of the other things but you know with better recovery as, as you were mentioning um with that more rest you can perform better and you recover better afterwards so the next day you're feeling a bit better so I think the average fitness enthusiast has uh, set some kind of a goal, like want to run a half marathon or a 5K or uh, perform in a, in a CrossFit setting or, or even uh, a, a sporting event. And so we've been socialized to think that 
uh, we go out here and on, on Tuesday afternoon is our big uh, interval session. And it's going to be really hard and you're going to suffer and you're going to try to uh, hit the, uh, you know, the, the time checkpoint uh, each time we do six times three minute repeat or, or whatever it is. And boy, was it a great celebration at the end that we could hang in there. And the sixth one was so difficult. And the, the first one was breezy, but then we just, you know, started to suffer and uh, give each other the thumbs up, hang in there. The recovery is so fast. And that 30 seconds comes up quicker and quicker each time. Uh, and that's where the uh, your feelings don't matter uh, clause comes in. So describe what you mean by that. Your feelings don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're in, you feel really good. Like afterwards, I mean, you're, you're in great pain, but you're also feeling the endorphins and feeling this great sense of accomplishment. Sometimes you're, you're laying on the floor and you're, you're a pool of sweat, um, you know, and that feels good. The, um, hurt style training, the, the, the repeats, you're kind of sitting around waiting for your your recovery. And like I, the people I train, they just get so bored with it. They're like, come on, can we do it? Can we do the next one? I feel fine. I'm, I'm ready to go. And it's really important to be able to repeat the same performance. And like people don't feel that they feel good afterwards. They recover, but they don't get that same sort of sense of accomplishment. And that's why I say your feelings don't matter. You know, this is what science is telling us is better um, for recovery. And we get the same effects in in mitochondria biogenesis and, and other other types of things well what's interesting is go- going back to the great uh the, the sprinters uh you know the, the highest most explosive performers uh in the world uh charlie francis great coach of ben johnson and uh, reading those old books about how these people trained that that's the crazy part is they'd just be hanging out waiting to deliver that next repeat and when you say a four minute rest interval that's ridiculous i mean you're 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 on your phone checking Instagram before you're doing the next rep. And I think especially for the endurance athletes listening, like myself with my badass uh, suffering uh, capabilities of a lifelong endurance athlete, I'd mm-hmm. go out and do my sprints and you know, I, I'd, I'd recover for 15 or 20 seconds because I was so tough and I'd step on the starting line again. All right, let's do another one. Let's bring it. Look how impressive uh, I can uh, recover from my sprint. Uh, yeah. But I, I guess we're... We're, we're jumping to the, the juicy part of the story. But when you, when you uh, put yourself on the line like that and perform another effort without that long, luxurious rest interval, as you say, uh, what is going on inside the body that's, that's destructive and causing more uh, recovery time and more damage? Yeah. And so everything that we have happen in the body, there's, you know, a good amount of it, I think. And this is, uh, you know, one of the, the key elements to this is we need to cause enough damage that we can recover from it. And, you know, I, I liken it to, I'm going to go a little tangent here, but um, people who are blacksmiths and hardened steel, you know, they heat it to really high temperatures and then they pound on it to make it harder. And this process of hardening is what happens in the body. If we heat the steel too much, it will actually melt and bend. If we, if we pound it too much, it actually becomes brittle and fragile. Um, same thing happens in our body. We need the right amount of stress. We signal all of these things happening and, you know, there's all these processes that that happen when we do a sprint that, um, you know, we tap into the glycolytic system a little bit. It sends out reactive oxidative species, which trigger AMPK production, which down the line um, brings us more mitochondria. So we have uh, mitochondria biogenesis. So all of the stress is important for that process. But if we do 
too short of intervals of rest, we create an acidic environment um, that uh, too much reactive oxidative species start to cause damage. They can actually cause uh, damage down the line to mitochondria, um, DNA, and over time that can actually you know, it might lead to injury, but it, it leads to decline in performance or plateaus. And so um, having enough rest is important. Um, when I say that, though, I think anybody training for an event, you need some glycolytic work at times. Like you said, you've got uh, that psychological edge. You can really push yourself. It's useful at times. Uh, so I'm not saying this is the, the training for everybody. I think you need glycolytic. Um, you need that to feel the pain every once in a while, but I, I don't think you need to feel it every training session. Well, Dr. Phil Maffetone talks about this uh, as well, where we're, we're coming from the uh, aerobic emphasis and the, the minimizing the stress impact of the workouts to allow one to build, build, build with their, their fitness. And uh, I think it runs counter to maybe that uh, type A competitive intensity where the reason we're drawn to the challenge in the first place is because uh, we welcome that suffering and we get that sense of accomplishment lying in the pool of sweat. But in terms of, you know, actually getting better and treating your body right and performing well in a peak performance event, I think the other thing we're, we're failing to recognize is when we watch these elites training or compare ourselves to what they're doing, in, in many ways, uh, these, these top performers are training in a less stressful manner than the average recreational enthusiast who's who's in the middle of the pack uh, while these guys are breaking records at the front, but their bodies don't break down or suffer. They don't suffer at the same uh, level as a, as someone who's not that condition, right? The, the the cellular breakdown is more destructive in in the average uh, well-meaning competitor than than the the gifted uh, Olympian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the, I think the professionals make the difficult look easy. And we see the sprinters, you know, like the elite sprinters, they look like they're barely doing any work when they, they win a race sometimes. Um, and I think that's the big part of it is that they have to practice this over and over again. Like you mentioned, Charlie Francis, um, you know, the first rest interval would be at 10 minutes. So that's the minimum rest interval. As they started to build up more work, the rest intervals got even longer. So 15, 20 minutes. But um, yeah, the elite athletes are definitely, you know, practicing and recovering. That's super important. I come from, you know, more of the CrossFit world and I see you watch the CrossFit games and you're like, wow, this is how I have to train. But the athletes are, are not training that way in the off season. You know, they know how to recover and then push themselves in a competition. So it's important to differentiate competition versus uh, practice and training. Well, also uh, the, 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 the thing that struck me was let's say watching Mo Farah win another Olympic gold medal and he's going flat out sprinting the last lap of the grueling 10,000 meters. He crosses the line and about 12 seconds later, he's raising his arms and starting a victory lap. And I'm like, something is going on with these elite athletes where they're just, they're, they're better trained. They're more genetically gifted. And so that maximum effort where they're just killing themselves down the home stretch to win the gold is less <laughs> less stressful on the body than mm -hmm. the, the Joe Blow who turns the final corner of the 10K and is sprinting in for the the benefit of the crowd. And so I think we have to uh, kind of you know uh, recalibrate uh, our notion of what we're supposed to do to our body in training and, and be a little more gentle. Uh, Maffetone said you know that the 
the anaerobic muscle fibers don't require that frequent of training because they're explosive. And then uh, uh, coupled with that, uh, this is sort of Mark Sisson throwing in the anecdote. It's like, wait a second, does the brain really need to be trained to suffer as well? Or can we suffer? I always use the analogy, if I, if I put a gun to your head right now, we're going to go run a marathon, listener, mm-hmm. whoever you are. I'll come over to your house right now and you can run a marathon. You will suffer like crazy if you're not prepared. But with yep. a gun to your head, the brain will turn on and, and light up a peak performance endeavor. But then if we're doing it three times a week, that's when we get into the, uh, the destruction. Talk about that disassembling and deamination. I don't want to get too sciencey, but it's really important for the listener to understand crossing that line and getting into a too stressful workout. Yeah. I, and you know, I might have to get a little scientific, but you know, if we think about what happens during a heart attack, and basically we have restricted blood flow to the heart, what happens is we, we take our ATP, our triphosphate, we got three phosphate molecules, we break off the phosphate to make ADP so our heart can st- still pump. Body's then got another mechanism. Okay, we can break off another phosphate. We get AMP. Um, but over time, there's no oxygen there, so we can't clean up the mess that we're creating. Eventually, we break down the AMP and we start creating ammonia, and this is sort of our emergency system. Um, when we break down that scaffolding that holds all the phosphates, we can't get rid of the mess because we don't have the scaffolding to put the, the phosphates on. And that's when we have all this oxidative stress damage. Um, that same sort of mechanism is what happens when we do too much glycolytic work. We start breaking down the phosphates. We want to do that. That AMP is a great signaling molecule to create more by, uh, mitochondria. But if we break it down further where we start to build up ammonia in the body and these, these harmful things, we break down the scaffolding to hold the, the phosphates together so we can't create um, new energy. And that's when the damage starts to happen. I don't know if I got too sciencey or you want me to go deeper, um, but um, that's kind of the, the basics of it. We don't want to ruin the scaffolding to hold our energy systems. So basically there's these uh, sweet spots mm-hmm. where – uh, you're doing a sprint workout, and this is this is why this is why I love you, man. Because I've been sprinting uh, in a devoted manner for 13 years now. After getting getting going with Mark and him convincing me that I needed to broaden my fitness perspective from just being able to go bike ride for a few hours on the weekend and calling myself fit, and then falling apart when I hit 40. I'm like, all right, I got to start doing some muscle stuff and some explosive stuff. So generally, my sprint workout was, uh, you know, going for. 20, 30 seconds of sprinting, recovering very short duration, hitting it again, doing it five or six times, uh, going home and feeling like crap the next morning with really tight calves, uh, needing a nap 36 hours after the workout, just feeling like I was going to fall apart sitting at my computer screen. And this was my normal. This was my baseline experience because sprinting so tough and I got to do it because I want to stay fit. And I, I thought nothing of it. I, I got used to the pattern. Uh, but then awakening to this new approach, uh, like we said offline, it's now I, I, I go do the workout. I feel great right afterward and there's no lingering problem. However, the workout is more explosive and arguably, uh, more contributory to my fitness because I didn't, I didn't trash myself. So talk about some of the parameters. Now we can get practical. We can take a deep breath after the, the science is floated out there. What are some practical applications of this? How someone might uh, set up a good workout in, in any sport, whatever they're doing. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think the the basic principles. What you're saying is you're training because we're doing repeats. We're training that explosive fiber to its maximum each time that we're putting out as much power as possible. We don't want to train the type two uh, muscle fibers to get slow by getting fatigued. So that's the biggest parameter. So we have to figure out what amount of time of work we're doing and then the amount of time of rest. Um, Gabala's original work, as I mentioned, was 30 seconds on with four minutes of rest. When you're doing 30 seconds of work, you're really getting into the glycolytic system. You're causing a lot of acid buildup. Um, It takes that long to buffer things out and to um, recreate the creatine phosphate. Um, He's come up with a shorter intervals since then. Um, I'll I'll talk about one of his innovative ideas in a few minutes. Um, But Pavel uh, Satsulin, um, he's worked on even shorter intervals. He does uh, some 10 seconds on, um, 50 seconds off, or five seconds, uh, it's about six or seven seconds on, and 30 seconds of rest. Um, So, with that, though, you really got to get to the speed very quickly and then you shut it down. Um, I think kind of the sweet spot that I've been finding in my research is 15 to 20 seconds on and then about 40 to 60 seconds of rest. And that seems, you know, it kind of gets my power um, at its max um, and then a plenty enough time to recover. But again, it depends on your sport. If you're a 400 meter person, you might want to push to, you know, 30 second intervals and a couple minutes of rest. Or if you're a boxer, you might want those shorter intervals and, you know, really build up the power as much as possible um, without getting the glycolytic. So I think that finding that sweet spot's a little different for everybody, but it's it's having enough rest. And the longer work you do, the more rest you're going to need. And it's, it's not a, a one-to-one ratio. It's sort of, um, the it's a, a logarithmic type of thing. So you need more rest the longer work you do. Oh, okay. So that's where you get the, um, the a four minute rest period might come from working, tiptoeing out there to the one minute full maximum effort. And um, I, I'm wondering if there is some variation based on the, uh, the, the the nature of the exercise, like high impact running sprints. Would that uh, tend to go to the shorter? Uh, the shorter duration interval versus uh, rowing or a uh, stationary bike or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the, the more muscles you involve, the, 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 um, the harder it is, the more you're going to need to recover because you're really tapping into the, the system um, completely. So I, I think, you know, the sprinting and, and the, the rowing is, is kind of a neat exercise too. I um, have struggled with it a little bit because some people, um, road i think there's a lot of technique involved i think we can put anybody on a, a track and and have them run mechanics wise they might screw themselves up but with rowing i feel like we have more risk of that um but yeah i think it really depends on what, how much how many muscle groups you're using so uh what's going on when a minute has gone by or or, or two minutes or whatever and you report feeling fine uh, or, or, you know, let's say it's 30 seconds and you think you're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on inside the body that's creating more benefit, less stress if we were to, uh, you know, be a little more luxurious with that rest interval? 
I, I think, you know, the, the toughest part, so creatine phosphate, we can recover that pretty quickly. So we can feel like we're ready to go and add that maximum power. What you'll find with your, if you have those shorter rest intervals, you feel the fatigue a little bit faster. So it takes a while to buffer the acid out of the system. And that's the part that you'll feel ready to go, but the acid is, is still buffering. It takes a while to, to get that out of the system. The And that's the slower aerobic system that's buffering all of that. So I think that's the part that you need the low, more luxurious rest intervals for. And the more acid you build up, the harder it is to get it out of the system. And I think um, that's why the sprint coaches will have 10 to 15 minutes of rest. They want all that acid buffered. So the next uh, set is, is perfect. Uh, so are there some symptoms like my uh, anecdotal story that I'm, I'm uh, feeling like crap 36 hours later because I, uh, stepped over the line in the workout and, and did some disassembling and deamination and oh, oh also the ammonia toxicity was quite alarming when I read that in your article because uh, guess where that's uh, most prominent is in the brain cells. Yeah, I, and I, I don't know if um, there's ever been a link to how much exercise you do and, and cognitive functioning. Um, I think there's just like big correlations, but um, you know it's certainly that. The lack of recovery probably means you've stepped over the line. Um, but, uh, you know, you might feel it with the next set. If you're starting to feel the acid build up faster, you probably want to stop, give yourself some rest. Um, you know, on the next interval, give yourself a little bit more rest. So I'll adjust my rest periods. I have this great plan in mind. And it's like, that when I was a little fatigued towards the end, if I'm going to do eight intervals or whatever number, I'm going to give myself a little bit more rest on this this one. Folks. Dr. Marker is giving you permission to adjust your rest interval. Again, we have to deprogram ourselves from the sufferfest mentality and realize that the highest quality workout might require a little more rest in the in the final intervals. But something you said super important at the outset, just in case we missed it or we should hit it harder, is like you want to deliver a, a similar quality of effort each time out of the gate. And when that point occurs in the workout, when you when you experience attrition, that's when it's time to pull the plug. Yep. Yeah, and and I, I think what's important is measuring it somehow because. Like I, I know for me, when I use kettlebells or the accelerometer, if I don't have that, I might feel powerful, but I can see exactly how much power I'm putting out. You know, with sprinting, you look at your times. Rowing, you can look at the output there. I think measuring it is probably as important as well so that you you get some not just subjective feeling because the pain will tell you you're working hard. That the um, perceived effort is uh, probably not the best measure. I'd, I'd go with something out, outside of you. Uh, so also when I'm sprinting, there's there's another element I want to ask you about. Of course, I can time myself and make sure I'm hitting that uh, that nine second uh, checkpoint when I when I go 60 meters or what have you. Uh, but there's also this aspect where I can still hit the time checkpoint, but I notice that I have to try significantly harder. So I also I also recognize that as a point where I'm pulling the plug. So if my perceived exertion is an 87 out of 100 on my first five repetitions, and then the last one, uh, even though I'm coming in a similar time, whew, I had to dig deep and go to, go to 95. Uh, that feels like either slowing down or having to try harder would be the, uh, the point where you pull the plug. I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I think that, that's a great 
only use perceived effort and then decide, you know, I'm, you know, fine with it. Um, but I think the combination of the two is, would work out as well. Yep. Uh, so let's make our smooth transition over to your, your work and the, the book you're working on in your specialty area of anxiety, because it does, uh, like, like you said, it, um, a little bit of this can kind of, uh, relate over to, uh, behavior and, and mood. Yeah. Um, so the basic idea is um, I started off in the field of anxiety disorders. And what I saw with people was um, this sort of fragility in the way that they treated themselves. So this idea that uh, going towards comfort was um, really important. So this is almost the opposite of what we see with your um, endurance athletes. But with people with anxiety, it was like, I don't want to be afraid. So I'm going to avoid everything that I'm afraid of. And what we see with that is that they become actually more sensitive to feared stimuli. And over time, you know, I saw people's lives become so sheltered because they were so afraid of things that they couldn't experience anything without it uh, sending them into a panic disorder. Um, the One of the, the most researched treatments on this is to expose them to what they fear. Um, so a simple example would be we, I had a little um, probably a seven or eight year old girl I was working with. She was afraid of elevators. And every time she, you know, went into a doctor's office or something, she would have to take the elevator. Her body would experience this great fear. She'd see the staircase and her body would say, phew, good thing you avoided that that big fearful stimuli. Um, and she'd take the staircase. And what that did, that reinforces the fear that uh, elevators are, are scary. So treatment with her was having her be on the elevator. And um, we, you know, kind of took it, you know, it was a very simple type of treatment, just took a few hours. Um, we had her stand next to the elevator until her fear went down. We had her um, put one foot in the elevator. We sat there for a while with one, the doors open with her just standing there. And eventually, two hours later, she's laying on the floor of the elevator saying, I'm so bored, can we please stop this? And well, that's how we broke uh, her anxiety. And it's this idea of the right amount of stressors actually made her less fragile and elevators no longer bothered her. She no longer had that physiological reaction um, to, you know, being in an elevator. And that's it's it's a similar pattern with all the anxiety disorders. Uh, somebody with social anxiety, um, you know, is fearing negativity from from others. So we often not at the beginning, but eventually take them to karaoke and have them sing terribly in front of a large audience, their body starts to uh, get used to it. It's almost like exercise. They, we train them so that they're no longer sensitive to what they fear. So the, the reader, your, your upcoming book is called The Anti-Fragile Self. Uh, we, can, we can work on this at home at whatever level. If we need uh, clinical support, that's one thing. But if we're just trying to to be a better person and kind of uh, break through some of these uh, uh, blocks that we have, we can kind of lean into it in, in general as an approach. Yeah, I, I think so. What we tell people with anxiety is if it feels bad, do it. Um, <laughs> I'll give a caveat because I think um, the people listening might have a problem where they, if, if we're kind of telling them the opposite, if it feels bad, take a little bit more rest. But, you know, it comes within reason. If you're uncomfortable with something, you're uncomfortable, like you feel an anxiety, that to me is my new signal. I had to train myself to do this, to move forward towards it. So I'm actually 
pretty socially anxious. I don't, uh, I, growing up, I was very shy and um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to become a professor and get over this. And that's, uh, you know, I just kept pushing myself. Every time I felt the opportunity to go hide, I just would say, nope, I have to do the opposite and push myself towards it to um, break this and to, to not fear it anymore. I guess that uh, entails a willingness to want to grow and improve, uh, because if you're if you don't like um, uh, you know large crowds, and you just make a point in life to to avoid them, is is that okay, or are there some hidden costs to not facing your fears, Craig? I I, I think. I mean, I'm not saying you have to always enjoy a menu of uh, causing yourself discomfort, but every time we choose not to face that challenge, we can actually make ourselves a little bit more fragile in the in the meantime. Um, we, you know, if somebody's afraid of large crowds and says, you know, I, I have this presentation to do today at work. Um, I don't want to do it. I'm going to call in sick. You've just made that presentation a bigger deal in your life. And the next time you go to do it, it's going to be a little tougher. So. I, you have your choice, of course, to, to not do it some days. But um, if you make a, that choice over a long period of time, I think you're going to actually make yourself more fragile over time. So how do we uh, clarify between uh, avoidance and, let's say, personal preference where you just you just don't you're just not into it? Um, <laughs> that's a good it's a really good question. I think um the people I've worked with with anxiety um, can rationalize things quite well. That No, I just don't want to be around large crowds. And um, I would suggest to them to like, well, let's try it and then let's see if it was fear or if it just was your preference or not. Um, I think pushing yourself, um, you know, and it's not just you know, social, like I think even being vulnerable or being, you know, vulnerable in relationships or just, you know, responding in a certain way um, in your relationships. You know, if if you're afraid to do it, you should try it and see if that's really, you know, your preference or if you're just trying to be safe. Um, if you're trying to be safe, I think it's it's good to challenge yourself. Hmm, I guess you, 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 you could try it. And if you have sort of a, uh, uh, a peace of mind afterward or, or a sense that you a sense of relief or a sense of exuberance that you you did something that made you feel good by facing your fear like the uh, the girl in the elevator probably went home and um you know was in a good mood after the after the whole entire uh, ordeal yeah yep definitely so yeah you feel it's it's again it's like exercise you feel a sense of accomplishment you've you've done something to challenge yourself um and, you know, when I started this project, it was really starting with anxiety. But eventually, you know, like it's this is what exercise is. If we look at the effects of sauna, what we're doing to the body is actually causing a stress and we we adapt to it. We get stronger with uh, cold exposure. Um, we have the same thing with eating certain foods. Um, you know, some of the foods that we eat are actually causing this body response to it, like resveratrol is actually causing the body to react to it and we become stronger because of it. Um, so I think this is a pretty unique biological mechanism that we have um, and we can, you know, push ourselves to become stronger people if we just go with what's uncomfortable more often. Um, just a, a silly example 
of stupid things that I do. Um, I try not to use the air conditioner or the heat in my car. If I did it at home, I, I wouldn't get away with it. But um, I, you know, I live in Atlanta. In the summertime, I get home from work. Or I go to the grocery store on the way home from work. I'm this sweaty mess. I think people must think I'm crazy coming into the grocery store. Um, but I think, you know what? I get this free heat exposure. I might as well try it. Or in the wintertime, you know, I try not to wear a jacket. And I've had people stop me when I'm walking down the street. Like, do you need a ride? Is something wrong? Why are you walking in 25-degree um, weather without a jacket on? I mean, I live in Atlanta, so it's not too difficult to do that. But, um, you know, I think this this idea of pushing ourselves in all situations. So I've got a free cold exposure. I've got free heat exposure. Um, you know, I look at everything as, a, as an opportunity um, for a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm thinking of uh, I'm envisioning a uh, I'm looking at a map of the United States right now actually and I'm envisioning like a giant percentage of the population scoffing at the thought of any of this and so I'm wondering you know here we are with the the uh, inexorable technological progress of life it's going to get easier and easier and easier we we can see that now we can uh, order up the uh, the drone's going to deliver our food for us. We don't even have to go to the, the supermarket, let alone go out and pick it. Okay, maybe mm -hmm. not the drone yet, but it, when, we, when we disengage from this uh, requirement for hormetic stressors in life and we just go with the flow and have the thermostat at 72 all the time, uh, et cetera, on down the line, never skip a meal, right? Overfeed ourselves uh, for, for our entire lives. Um, what's... What are the consequences, really? I, I think it, it comes down to biological mechanisms uh, involved with each. Um, you know, if we think of blood vessels, they're meant to contract and dilate. And if we, we're never allowing them to do that, the, the muscles around the blood vessels get weaker and, and you know, there's a point people with type 2 diabetes, putting them in, I believe it was just a 55 degree room for an hour, um, improved their diabetic symptoms. And I think they, they suggested part of that was flexibility of their blood vessels. It started triggering processes in the body that actually led to more insulin sensitivity. Um, you know, your work with uh, uh, keto and fasting, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. When we uh, challenge our body, our body re responds to that stressor and, um, you know, adapts to it. So we, you know, we're all constantly adapting to stressors. We need the right amount of stressors to adapt and live longer, live better, live healthier. Yeah, I'm such a huge fan of my morning chest freezer cold plunge. And the great research shows that you get a boost in the mood elevating hormone norepinephrine for up to an hour, 200 to 300% spike and all these other great uh, metabolic things are, are happening. Uh, but I, it's, I've come to understand that uh, maybe my favorite benefit or the favorite aspect of doing this is just that I can tell myself and tell the world whenever I can keep the pressure on, but I'm, uh -huh. I'm, I'm able to say that, you know what? I do this every single day. I just jump into a tub of 34 degree water and I, I'm in there for four to six minutes doing my deep breathing. It's a meditative experience. And if I can, uh, embody the resilience and the discipline to do that, I feel like it carries over into 
or has the potential to carry over into all other areas of life, like disciplining my use of my email inbox when I'm trying to work on a book and all those things that are are pain and suffering points, emotional control when you're interacting with others. Uh, So they, they do have sort of a, um, uh, a mushroom effect where if you can (laughs) drive, drive to the market uh, in, in the sticky Atlanta heat, uh, maybe you'll be more resilient when, uh, the line so long at the store that you're, you know, you're about to crack. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm living the life when I get in the grocery store. It's like hey, air conditioning. This feels awesome, oh, right? The, the pleasure <laughs> yeah. and the appreciation. Same with skipping uh, breakfast. Uh, yeah. You know, when it comes time to have lunch, you're going to dive into that meal and have possibly a more pleasurable experience and more more gratitude for uh, for something because you're putting limits on uh, this complete decadence and massive amounts of free choice and all these things that that serve to uh you know probably gone overboard on them yeah yep no i think you make a great point the self-efficacy that you can handle tough uh, life events is is vital in this process and that's a sort of secondary benefit you know like you said the cold tub there's you're probably helping your blood vessels your your insulin sensitivity all of these type of um effects that happen with cold exposure. But yeah, you know that you can face life stressors. I just sat in this 34 degree tub. I know the rest of the 90% of the population can't do this. So I I can face this little stress in life. So yeah, I think that's a a great secondary effect. Uh, So on the flip side, Craig, we we talked about the, the diminishing returns from not resting sufficiently in between sprint workouts. And I wonder if there are other ways that we can OD on our hormetic stressor efforts or our uh, desire to overcome anxiety and and throw too much on our plate because we're now we're joining Toastmasters and going to karaoke and walking through the halls at work instead of going straight to our cubicle <laughs> and maybe getting uh, beyond that uh, that optimal uh, stress rest balance. Yeah. I I mean, I think it's a little bit tough for us to do that to ourselves. I mean, maybe your listeners, maybe not. um, But, you know, for the most part, like we probably can't put ourselves in enough stress anxiety wise. I mean, when we get into more traumatic situations where people are uh, experiencing life or death situations, you know, that's where the stress becomes too much. I don't know if we can put ourselves. I mean, we have people wearing crazy hats and going up to people in the store, you know, asking them, don't I know you and doing all kinds of things. And we don't break people. But, um, you know, if you're a victim of, uh, you know, abuse or uh, seeing a terrible event or a life threatening event, you know, that's when the stress is a little bit too much. I don't I don't know. I think we can your listeners can certainly do it to themselves. But, yeah, you'll you'll probably stop way before that breaking point. (laughs) Well, I I guess uh, you can you know, play with these, uh, fasted workout, uh, attributes. Um, but when you're putting the stress of fasting together with the stress of a high intensity training session, uh, and then noticing, uh, difficulty recovering, maybe we go back to the the drawing board and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, throw in a, um, uh, some recovery fuel right afterward when the, when the muscles can, can reload. And, uh, yeah, I guess there's no hard and fast rules, but, uh, testing whether you feel great after going to the store in a funny hat and, and going up to strangers or whether you need to go home and, and take a two hour nap could be, could be one way to approach it. Yes. Yep. 
I agree. And I, I think this is an awesome conversation because I am I'm often working with people who are just trying to be so comfortable with their lives. And you're working with people who are, you know, so used to being uncomfortable that they're looking for as much pain as possible in life. So, yeah, you have to find that balance and, you know, figure out where you are. But I, I think either either way, this process makes you more mindful. And that's kind of what you mentioned. You just start to appreciate things. You know where you're at. You know, you know, you can tell your hunger. You can enjoy the meal more. Um, you know, all those things come and you're more sensitive to where you are. The anti-fragile self. Basically, it's what we're going for, huh? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and just one quick, quick, one more quick aside. Um, there's, um, I'm guessing by you, I haven't seen these. I have to go uh, see these. But there's these bristlecone pines in in the mountains of California, and the altitude is somewhere between five and ten thousand feet. So it's it's pretty high up. There's a lack of oxygen. Um, there's severe cold. There are also direct sunlight, so it's a severe heat, a lot of wind, drought. Um, so these trees are experiencing all of these stressors all the time. Um, they live to 5,000 years years old, and, and I think it's because of the stressors that they live that long, not despite not be, um, despite the stressors. And I think those stressors make those trees stronger and more resilient. And that's kind of the basic principle with uh, anti-fragile self. Um, not enough stress to kill you, but enough to make you more resilient over time. And just like the blacksmith, we don't want to break the metal, but we just want to pound it and make it stronger. Well, so just jumping back to the discussion of those explosive high-intensity workouts with long rest periods, and if you're the endurance-minded athlete where your goals are going in for hours and hours of, uh, let's say, finishing the Ironman race or the marathon or the ultramarathon, uh, can you can you give us some rationale for doing such a short, intense effort and resting a long period of time and something that's completely disparate from uh, plugging along for hours on end and how how these explosive workouts can actually benefit you at at all intensity levels? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would just point to the research that, um, you know, they've done, Tabata started the research looking at these shorter intervals and uh, and effects on endurance type work. And then Gabala's continued it. But these shorter training sessions actually lead to better results in the longer endurance events. Um, you're building the aerobic system to be super efficient, to recover um, super efficiently in between these high power type of, of training sessions or intervals and and um, you know, so I, I think the benefit really comes from there, uh, um, as well as just, you know, you're building power, which is uh, vital for any type of training at some point in time. Well, I guess similar to your discussion with the anxiety training where you wear the funny hat and go in the store, um, if you can, if you can perform at maximum intensity, you theoretically, I, I think this has been proven with research too, that, um, your perceived exertion at all slower paces is goes down. So if you can, if you can blast some sprints and exhibit good form, and then it's time to go uh, run a nine minute mile for an hour, that nine minute mile is going to seem easier because you know what it's like to, to, you know, launch off the ground with twice as much explosiveness. Yes. Yeah. Nope. Excellent point. Yes. So where can we uh, find all your good stuff besides that, that mandatory reading uh, hit versus hurt. You can type that into Google, H-I-I-T versus H-I-R-T, and the article will pop right up. But what else we got going? 
Yeah, um, my my book will come out soon. The other thing I've been writing on uh, strength.university. So it's a new site that uh, just kind of I, I do most of my writing to teach myself things. So I um, like I'm, I'm kind of under learning about a topic and understanding it. And so I write an article about it to to explain it to myself. But I've been putting those up on strength.university. Um, and that's that's about it. I don't do very good self-promotion. That's that's why we got the, the magic nuggets. We got to dig deep for them. Dr. Craig Marker, thanks so much for spending the time explaining all this stuff. Rest more people, take it easy, and then blast some good explosive work. It'll make your life better, less fragile. Awesome, Brad. It was always, always great to talk with you. I look forward to doing this again sometime. Thanks, Craig. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she so she loves those sort of, we love them as well. We have uh we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the the ranch, um the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine and I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the arse out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.